Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. We talked about this man yesterday. I certainly do not intend to allow a brutal and sacrilegious gang of criminal miscreants to dictate the future direction of my family, nor to weaken my family's commitment to do the right thing, no matter the cost. In the final analysis, it is the intentions of our actions, not their consequences, on which we shall all eventually be judged. Joshua Boyle, who tomorrow will be in court looking for bail on the criminal charges that he faces. Joshua Boyle, of course, a visitor to and a guest of the Prime Minister in the Prime Minister's office, along with Mr. Boyle's wife, Caitlin, and their kids. Now, why would Justin Trudeau invite Joshua Boyle to the Prime Minister's office? It's something we speculated on yesterday or questioned and wondered about. And particularly with Boyle saying that he and Trudeau had met in 2006 and they had shared interests. So I've received a lot of emails to Roy at Roy Green Show about that overnight. And there was some activity on Twitter as well, at the Roy Green Show. With that going on, with, with Trudeau meeting with, um, with Joshua Boyle, brought me back to the issue of the fact that the Prime Minister has never met, never met with the families of Robert Hall and John Ridsdell, two Canadians who, as you know, were beheaded by an ISIS-affiliated group in the Philippines. Zero involvement by the Prime Minister, other than having called the, uh, the sister of Robert Hall. We spoke with uh, Bernice Thomas a few months ago about this. And she told us the Prime Minister had called and he had offered condolences, but Bernice told us it sounded for all the world like he was reading something that had been written for him. And when he was through reading, he hung up. So why would the Prime Minister of this country meet with Joshua Boyle And there's so many questions about his visit to Afghanistan with his eight-month pregnant wife. And then the five years with the Taliban, if you read the McLean's um, article and interview, it seems as though he was giving orders to the Taliban and the Kidani or Kahani network. He was supposed to be the kidnap victim, but he was telling them what to do. So a lot of questions, a a lot of very significant questions to be Answered, But what troubles me tremendously is there continues to be no interest, or no apparent interest, no clearly visible interest by the government of Canada for the families of either John Ridsdale or Robert Hall. Double standard. Meet with Joshua Boyle. Ignore the families of two Canadians. Tell Canada that the ISIS, returning ISIS terrorists, who obviously had zero interest in the values of this country because they joined the terror group ISIS, made their way to Syria, joined ISIS, and were ready, and who knows, maybe did participate in uh, some of the atrocities that we were aware of. They certainly went there and were joined ISIS, and maybe they were involved in those activities. But we're apparently not going to find out because there's no interest by the federal government to pursue any criminal charges or any jail time for these individuals. Instead, the Prime Minister talks about their potential extraordinary value to Canada and Canadians. Gord Bibby is the uh, cousin of Robert Hall. And Gord, we've talked about this this issue and this question and the, the lack of clearly visible concern for the families, your family and, and the family of Mr. Ridsdale by the Prime Minister and by his 
by his cabinet. It's it's really disturbing. And when Boyle had his visit, and nothing, no interest in 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 you and Mr. Ridsdale's family, it just uh, the the flashing light read double standard to me. How are you? Uh, I'm I'm left speechless as usual, uh, Roy. Yeah, I, I don't know what's going on in the halls of Parliament. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's just astounding. It's, you know, this is just another example of of how Mr. Trudeau shows more empathy towards those who have association with terrorist groups than Canadians, such as my cousin Robert and and John Ridstall. Uh He seems to have uh, more of a penchant for photo opportunities than uh, displaying good judgment. Uh, uh, or lack of good judgment, I should say, and naivety and inexperience and lack of, li- uh, lack of life experiences. I, he, he fosters a rock star image while being ill-equipped to deal in the trenches with tough and dirty issues. And, and it's, it's scary. I, I, I'm really concerned that, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> as I say, I'm just left speechless. Well, you take all the individual pieces and you start to put them together, and the picture that it starts to form is one that concerns you. Uh, well, absolutely. Um, uh, the the, uh, the the lack of uh, concern for for certainly for the the victims, John and, and Bob, uh, during the during their kidnapping, and 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 even more lack of concern for the families because they just kept them in the dark, uh, uh, and, and it's just I I am absolutely bewildered as to what the mindset is in these. Uh, with the government. Yeah, what's the impact of this on your whole family? And for children who are members of your family, what? how do you explain it to them? Well, you can't really, because, uh, I mean, you know, they, they watch the news, they see these uh, these uh, million-dollar payouts to, uh, uh, to uh, people associated with terrorism, terrorist groups. Um, every time one of these things comes up, like this Boyle incident, it just it just opens up all of the emotions of the uh, and there's there's no closure. I, I think I've said this on your program before. There's there's no closure to the families because it's just it's just it's open ended. You know, there's there's no no rhyme or reason to uh, why uh, why these two men were left to uh, be beheaded in the jungles in the Philippines. And it's just uh, it's just devastating emotionally. I, I have some of my fellow cousins who are just uh, you know they burst out in tears. Uh, still, you know, and and we're what we're a year and a half, two years mm-hmm. uh, past uh, past the the murders of uh, John and uh, Bob. Yeah, and you had the electronic petition. We the, do. The yes. call was calls for an inquiry, and for a system of inquiry. Exactly, petition six ninety six, and and as far as I know, nothing's moved forward uh, on that. Well, there certainly hasn't been any vocal support for the petition for the from the prime minister, but he has vocal support for returning ISIS terrorists That's right. who would have engaged Canadian forces in battle and tried to kill them had they had they encountered one another. And who knows? Maybe they did. Maybe some of our special forces, JTF two, encountered uh, Canadian ISIS members. I, I I don't think they would have fared too well against JTF2, but the point is that these people who are supposedly Canadian citizens spat on this country, joined the terrible terrorist group, and now the prime minister says, well, they could be extraordinarily helpful 
in, uh, in Canada's efforts going forward. Well, that's right, and he's, he's naive in thinking that, uh, that a Canadian, uh, uh, somebody who's, who's uh, been re- relocated to this company and applied for citizenship, that uh, that that should uh, trump any any uh, legal action or any uh, any account for for their actions, and uh, you know he's as a Canadian as a Canadian as a Canadian. Well, yeah. not in all circumstances, in my mind, anyway. This is just bizarre, Gord. It's really, really bizarre. The things that have taken place, the decisions made by the Prime Minister of Canada, the fact that he so openly states these objectionable, makes these objectionable statements, um, is troublesome. And and at 4 o'clock this afternoon, will be uh, Eastern Time, uh, we're going to be speaking with uh, Tom Quiggin about all of this in uh, from his new book submission. Gord, thank you so much. I, I just wanted to speak with you and have people have an opportunity to hear you because it has to be made clear that the Prime Minister has shown no interest in meeting with your family or Mr. Ridsdale's family but he has great interest, obviously, in meeting with people like Joshua Boyle. Well, I appreciate that, Roy, and I'm very much looking forward to uh, your interview later on in your program. All right. We'll talk again, Gord. All the okay. best. Thank you very much, Roy. Take Bye-bye. Care. Gord Bibby, cousin to Robert Hall. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. And it's a story that began with uh, the Calgary Herald and was picked up by... Um, other news organizations, I have National Post story in front of me, foreign money funneled towards Canadian political advocacy groups affected the outcome of the 2015 federal election, according to a document filed with Elections Canada and obtained in part by the Calgary Herald. It has to do with many, many millions of dollars that were brought into this country or directed toward this country and targeted at particular writings with uh, conservative members who were quite prominent, like the former finance minister. And it was third-party money. And from what I understand is if you, if you, even though there's a limit for Canadians, there's not a limit for people outside the country if they make their contributions before a certain date. It's a little more complicated than that, I'm, I'm sure. But I, I'm looking at this National Post story. Uh, Lead Now was one of the organizations, and Tides, the Tides Foundation, was of course they're usually behind anything that has to do with uh, with this country that's conservative. Uh, December 15, uh, 2015, Lead Now report defeating Harper discusses how effective its campaign was in the 2015 general election. The conservatives were defeated in 25 out of 29 ridings, and in seats the conservatives lost. Our recommended candidate was a winner 96% of the time. Apparently, Lead Now refused uh, requests for interviews. That's according to the news story. Now, Senator Bob Runciman was quoted in the story that the headline is Millions in Foreign Funds Spent in 2015 Federal Election to Defeat Harper Government Report Alleges. Um, in total, 114 third parties poured $6 million into influencing the election outcome. Senator, thank you for the time. This is, this is a, a, a American money that came into Canada? Well, uh, as far as we know, in terms of the uh, Tides Foundation, uh, there's Tides Canada, but they receive a lot of their funding through their U.S. arm, which is really the parent of, of uh, Tides Canada. So, uh, you know, that's one of the, the question marks surrounding this money, that when it comes in 
into a third-party uh, organization uh, that's res- registered under the Canada Elections Act that, uh, you know, anything that's uh, provided to the organization prior to six months before an election, uh, we really don't know, uh, you know, where it's going or, or what it's being used for, uh, and that's the whole, you know, significant issue. And I think uh, the fact that we have fixed election dates in Canada now has made our our uh, electoral process really vulnerable to uh, foreign influence. So if Roy Green were to, or any Canadian, you included, probably not so much you, because you're a member of the Senate, but if uh, any of us were to form a third-party political organization and, uh, and request and receive funding from an international organization or a country or whatever, uh, six months before the election date, uh, we, could, we could do with that money whatever we wanted as far as where we were directed for the election is concerned? Well, you know, as you, I think you mentioned your lead in that, you know, Canadians are limited. I think it's 1500 a little over $1,500 that you can donate to a political party. The corporations, yeah. the unions, they, they can't contribute anything. But it's essentially it's open season for, for third parties. And, uh, you know, even if they're financed from uh, Moscow or Beijing, they can put in, you know, untold millions of dollars. And then uh, what happens is that that money... Uh, is blended into the uh, operational dollars of that third party, and they can use it uh, for a whole range of activities to affect election outcomes. And, uh, you know, one of the things, uh, I'm not a a current member of the Senate. I I left a few months ago. I retired a few months ago, Roy, but I chaired the committee that uh, took a review with with Elections Canada on the weaknesses in the Act and made recommendations to the Senate and to the... uh, government with respect to changes that are required but uh, you know that's a, a significant thing that uh, these monies can be blended into the uh, operating dollars of these third parties and the only restrictions really um, on the third parties are, are related to advertising and there's a very very narrow uh, definition of, of advertising so they can they can use the, those funds for a whole range of things like you know canvassing or doing uh, you know robocalls um, uh, they, they can organize rallies, uh, which are uh, not, not directly related to the election, but can deal with an issue and, and have an impact on the election. So, uh, you know, they, they can pay individuals to canvas in neighborhoods. And uh, so that's the sort of thing that's going on. In so why do, why, do we, why, why do we have this window open? Why isn't that window, that opportunity being closed for foreign money to come in and affect our elections? Well, obviously not. I think the the... The third-party funding uh, formula, if you will, was was introduced 17 years ago, and we've right. seen a lot of changes. And of course, one of the most significant one in, in Canada is uh, moving to fixed election dates, and that's really what has provided this loophole uh, for foreign dollars to flow into Canada. But they they quite obviously could have a very significant impact on an election if they take their money and they work within the, as you say, the advertising rules, but they direct their money toward a candidate they want to see win or against a candidate they want to see lose, they could swing the election in a particular riding and overall across the country. It's potentially possible if it's a very tight race, they could form, they, be, they could be the, the final financial arbiters of who wins. I agree. I mean, the Canadians should be uh, alarmed about, uh, you know, what's happening and, uh, you know, really, except for technicalities, as long as a, as a third party receives the money six months before that uh, yeah. election, they can, they can receive unlimited amounts of, of foreign money from any source around the world. 
and they can use it in an election. Now, I have to mention that Senator Linda Frum, who's an Ontario senator, has introduced legislation to try and you know, bring in changes to the Canada Elections Act, but I'm told that it's being uh, stalled by the so-called independents uh, in the in the Senate, led by uh, Senator Wu from uh, from uh, Vancouver. Well, that would be the former Liberal caucus in the Senate. Well, there still is a so-called Liberal, uh, independent Liberal caucus, which I find, I'm not sure their numbers now, 15 or 16 members, right. but all of the all of the folks appointed by. Uh, by the uh, current liberal government are calling themselves independents. So, uh, but in in reality, they're they're essentially when government legislation comes before them, they're uh, they're voting for government legislation, okay. and, um, and they they're leading the way in opposing uh, this sort of uh, change, which uh, is puzzling to say the least. If they're independent. Yeah. Well, it's something that we need to be aware of. Uh, we just look at the amount of noise that's being made over the alleged Russian in, involvement in the American election. If we have international involvement to the tunes of millions of dollars that can swing important writings in, in this country, it's something that we need to pay attention to. I'm still going to call you a senator. Thank you for the time and uh, happy birthday to your wife. Thanks for calling, Roy. Thanks well, for your interest in this. We well, have to get more of it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, we'll stay in touch. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. All the best. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, this is from WITI Television in Wisconsin. An eighth-grade privilege test at a Wisconsin middle school called out straight white males, interact families, as well as people with money and without disabilities, and not everybody was happy with the exercise. A privilege test was given to 158th-grade students at a Wisconsin public school in December and consisted of 55 statements, participants checked off, such as, I am white, I'm a man, I'm heterosexual, I feel comfortable in the gender I was born in, my family and I have never lived below the poverty line, my parents are still married, I do not have any physical disabilities. This was for 13-year-olds. story goes on to say, for a lot of children, they don't even understand what it means, Kim Goldman, who told uh, WITI, noting that her seventh-grade daughter didn't receive the test but knows all about it because of the controversy at school. Um, one other statements on the privileged test included, I've never tried to hide my sexuality. I've never been called a terrorist. I've never been catcalled. As Coleman said, my child doesn't even know what it means to be catcalled. She's just 13. This is the age they're teaching it. Uh, WITI noted that an upset parent called West Bend Police about the privilege test. A police spokesman confirmed to WITI that the call occurred, but the police told the caller it was a school district matter. Some of the language in the questionnaire, I can see why, as a parent of a 13- or 14-year-old 8th grader, some people may feel as though those are topics that should be discussed in the home and not in the classroom. Middle school principal, Dave Yulman, told the station. So Mr. Yulman agrees that some of the points weren't appropriate for a 13-year-old, but there they were anyway. Here's just a few of them. So they have to check these off. I've never been the only person of my race in my room. I've never been mocked for my accent. I've never been told I'm attractive for my race. I have never been a victim of violence because of my race. Uh, I've never been told I sound white. 
The stranger has never asked to touch my hair or asked if it's real. I am heterosexual. I have never lied about my sexuality. I never had to come out. I never doubted my parents' acceptance of my sexuality. He goes on then to uh, use words that I'm not going to use here. Um, just a couple more. I've never been ostracized by my religion for my sexual orientation. I have never been told that I would burn in hell for my sexual orientation. I have never been told that my sexuality is just a phase. I have never been violently threatened because of my sexuality. These are kids, 13 years of age. I feel comfortable in the gender I was born as. I still identify as the gender I was born in. I have never tried to change my gender. I have never felt unsafe because of my gender. I've never been catcalled. I've never been sexually harassed or assaulted. And then it goes into uh, economic issues. I've never felt poor. Never had to worry about making rent. 13. I buy new clothes at least once a month. My parents pay all of my bills. 13. My parents pay some of my bills. I've never been homeless. I've never gone to bed hungry. I've never skipped a meal to save money. My parents are heterosexual. My parents are still married. What else do we have here? I've never attempted, I've never considered suicide. I've never attempted suicide. 13. Anyway. And, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a privilege test. It's a, described as a white privilege test. Let's talk about this uh, with a man I have tremendous respect for. He's been a guest on this program many times, Ron Miller. He's an associate dean and professor of government studies at Liberty University. And uh, a former member of the American Air Force, the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. Ron, it's great to speak with you. Happy 2018. Happy New Year to you, too, Roy. So when you hear this and, and, and when you read the questions and you realize they're for 13-year-olds, is there value to some of it, all of it, none of it? What's, what's, what's the objective? Well, I think the question that you ask about objective is very important. Um, I think there's always value in understanding the perspectives that other people have. I mean, we, we have the old traditional saying that uh, it's important to walk in another man's moccasins, as it were, and I hope I'm not being politically incorrect by saying that. But there, there are all kinds of proverbs that speak to taking an other-centered perspective on, on things so that you're not just looking at things from your point of view but from the point of view of other people. So in a moral sense, that's, that's obviously something of value. The question, though, is what is the intent of administering a test with questions that specific and, and that wide-ranging to people in this particular age group? Uh, I, I don't know if the report indicated whether the test was optional. Yes, it was. Uh, that's an, Okay, so that's a factor as well. But I would imagine, given the age of the participants and the nature of a school system, that if you didn't participate, that 
It would be something that would be known to others. There might be peer pressure or pressure from the people in authority, perceived pressure, to take it. So even if it's optional, there's still the possibility that people would feel compelled to do it because uh, others do it, and uh, it may call attention to you if you don't. And it certainly would have been um, an issue of great dis- a lot of discussion, obviously, a lot of discussion in the hallways of the school and beyond. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so given the fact that there is obviously value in understanding another person's perspective, the question is what was the intent of the test being administered by the school system uh, at this level of, of uh, age? Is it what, what were they trying to do? Uh, one of the problems with this particular topic is that too many people want to take a topic that does have some value in studying and use it as a weapon against people. You know, there, there's a, a tendency in our culture to weaponize discourse. Uh, and if the intent is to use it to call people out or to, to produce shame or guilt, then you have to ask yourself, what, what does that achieve? Uh, I always tell people that you, you have uh, two real purposes for communication, uh, actually three, to inform, to inspire, or to inflame. And I would ask the question, what was the intent of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, I noted in my, my review of the report that while the principal seemed to understand the parents' ire at the test, the school district somehow seemed to think that the societal imperative of the test outweighed parents' concerns. And frankly, that's a red flag for, for any parent because there is a perception that parents ultimately need to be responsible for the moral education of their children. Um, but there are people out there who believe that if they don't corporately bring these issues to the forefront, that parents never will. Um, again, the parents may say, well, if that's fine, but that's none of your business. You know, um, we, we don't, we don't cotton well, as they would say in Texas, to, uh, um, having authorities tell us what we're supposed to do. And how do you know, how do you know, Ron, what the position or the view is? of the person at the front of the classroom or the principal or the director of education or superintendent of education? What are the instructions that have gone into the classroom to the teachers about this particular privilege test? What what focus are they supposed to take? You don't know that. You don't find that out. The, the first thing the parents found out was the test had been taken. Yeah, I think the, the prudent approach would have been to have informed the parents in advance about the test uh, maybe even given them a copy of the test itself so that they can make the determination as to whether or not they wanted their children to participate. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that something like this would be uh, a useful classroom discussion to have uh, with the idea of increasing sensitivity and and, and encouraging dialogue, but certainly uh, not the, the test seems to put people on the spot, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Um, these particular questions. Now, there was one, one of the points or one of the questions that's asked of the students is, or the points they have to respond to is, my parents are heterosexual. So I never wanted to talk about my parents when I was, when I was a kid. Um, but how does it, how does it, how does it, how does a thirteen-year-old deal with that? Uh, and why should a thirteen-year-old be expected to answer that to the satisfaction of a teacher and whoever is going to be reading and assessing these this particular test? 
Well, technically speaking, everybody had a, a male and a female involved in their parentage, so it's a yeah. interesting question, nonetheless. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I, I understand what they're trying to do. In fact, I understand the intent of this is is pretty much what you indicated uh, as you let in, and that is to uh, paint a narrative that uh, they want people to subscribe to. Mm-hmm. And that leads to a, a very convoluted discussion about when we're at this level of education, uh, is this where we start doing this kind of socialization? Or are we just trying to create people who can process information well, can think critically, do the things that they need to do to be successful in life, and then uh, at a later time, say in college, we start talking about some of these issues? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what some parents are expressing, is that they think this is far too um, complex and, and, and controversial uh, a, a survey to be conducting at this stage of the game. And what troubles me, uh, Ron, is that all of these points begin with I or my. So they make it very personal for the 13-year-old. Yes. And that really bothers me. If you want to make it a little more generic or, or, or ask a question that they can answer, they can put, give some critical thought to and answer in a, in a manner that can be discussed later, that that would be more helpful, but to, it puts the kid on the spot. And uh, if Johnny answers a question, several questions a certain way, Johnny could be quizzed on that by the teacher. And it could be a, well, this is a broader uh, question exercise, but Johnny's the kid on the spot. And that's not fair. Well, one of the things I was curious about, typically when you do a survey like this, uh, once the results have been tallied, there's an outcome uh, that needs to be provided to the people taking the survey. Mm-hmm. In other words, if you answer a certain number of questions a certain way, they say, well, this is the outcome of your survey. I don't didn't see any indication whether there was any outcome, uh, for example, no, I didn't between either. X and Y. And, you know, so, so you're right. It may be possible that somebody's going to take the results of this questionnaire They're going to look at the name at the top of the test. They're going to look at the results and say, oh, this is a person who presents a problem from somebody's perspective because they seem to be in a certain category. And because they're in this category, they need to be perhaps educated. And then then you're opening up an entirely different can of worms. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Ron Miller. Thank you, Ron, for continuing to stay with us. The Associate Dean at Liberty University, former United States Air Force member, and uh, his book is Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. The issue of white privilege. Uh, You're African-American, and I remember you telling me about a year year or two ago that you had that quote-unquote conversation with your son about relations with police for African-Americans in the United States. And we've seen what's gone on in the National Football League, where the kneeling before the games by athletes that has been condemned by many, supported by others. The issue of white privilege, Ron, how do you see it as a dad, as an African-American, as an educator? Well, as a dad, um, I, I always want to emphasize to my son and my daughters as well that 
they have power over the things that happen to them to the extent that they may not be able to control the circumstances, but they can control their response to them. And so I never want them to surrender that. And in so many things we see today, people are putting the responsibility, the blame, whatever phrase you want to use, on things that are external to them and, and not taking a agency and ownership of how they respond to them. So when we talk about uh, whether or not there is privilege, uh, especially a race-based privilege, even if there were, um, I don't believe that that dictates or governs how we respond to it, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. That being said, you might remember you had a guest on uh, some time ago, uh, a, a woman who uh, applied for jobs for which she was very well qualified. Yes, I do remember. And and was not getting any responses, and then she decided as an experiment to change her name to something that was very generic and not ethnically oriented and use the very same resume, very same credentials, and she got numerous responses. That's right. So that is that is something that I think is telling it's not it's not unusual and it's not evil to think that people tend to associate with and feel most comfortable around people that are like them okay mm -hmm. and i think when we talk about the concept of white privilege it's a horrible bumper sticker slogan that's trying to describe something that actually has some substance and some meaning and it's something that we need to examine but it's not something that people should feel uh, condemned or over or anything like that, because the whole concept behind it is that we're not aware of it. We're not aware that there are certain advantages to certain types of behavior, yeah. certain types of appearance, that sort of thing. And privilege, the word privilege implies unmerited favor. And so I've, I've, I've always wondered if there's a better word than privilege, because it, it almost invites defensiveness. Now, I will say this, too. I think that whites and blacks, and this is where I'm looking at it from an African-American perspective, I think whites and blacks view privilege differently because of the way they view life collectively versus individually. I think a lot of times because whites as, as, a, as a group have never been looked at and, and labeled collectively for the most part now, i know there are circles where that happens but for the most part you don't think of of uh, whites as a monolithic group where they there's a lot of diversity within the white population a lot of different uh, points of view a lot of different ethnicities all of these other things so i think as a tendency they tend to view things on an individual basis you know how am i as an individual privileged or not privileged while blacks, either because they've been compelled to do so or because of the culture, they see themselves as a collective. And because they see things collectively, I think it's easier for them to look and project that to the other side. So when they use the phrase white privilege, they see it as a collective thing, that whites collectively have these advantages. So I Whereas see myself as, I see myself within the, within the group collective, and so I must also place you in a group collective because that's my life's experience. Yes, exactly. Whereas a white person um, may look at it and says, well, uh, you know, I have the, these advantages or these disadvantages, and they see it as, as what their own individual experiences have been. Mm -hmm. And they presume that a black person should see it the same way, that it should be about what their individual experiences have been. And I say this as somebody who was very insulated 
from a lot of the difficulties that black Americans as a whole have experienced because my father being in the military, me growing up in integrated communities, going to integrated schools, being in safe communities with military installations and all of that, I was very shielded from a lot of these things. And so I grew up with that same sense of, of individual achievement and responsibility and that sort of thing, whereas if I had been born to a single mom in, in West Baltimore or Ferguson, Missouri, and I had all these horrible role models around me, I couldn't go to school thinking that I would be safe from drugs or violence or any of these other things, who knows what my perspective might have been. So I want to encourage some level of what I like to call other-centeredness and realizing that each one of us brings experiences to the table that can't be easily dismissed because we have not gone through them. And so when we try to deal with these issues from a university perspective with our students, we basically try, and particularly at a university like Liberty University, which is a Christian-based institution, we're trying to teach them to put the perspective of others to the, for, to the forefront and try to think of things from that point of view. And what that does is foster greater understanding and greater dialogue as opposed to us standing on different sides of the partition and sniping at one another. Um, you know, I told you once that for years I considered myself much more privileged than most because although I may be black, I also have both my parents married uh, 58 years and uh, counting. Um, I was raised in... Uh, they, 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 they get the congratulations. Yeah, yeah of me, course. Yeah, but, yeah. But they set, they set an example for me. So I was raised in a two-parent home. Uh, we were middle class, so we were always uh, able to have put food on the table, always had clothes on our backs, a roof over our heads. I had all of those things. And so even though being black may have uh, caused people to look at me one way, uh, depending on what their particular prejudices or feelings were, I had all these other things that were advantages in my life. And so privilege as a concept is very complex and it's intersectional. You may have privilege that has a race-based component, but you may also have privilege based on class, privilege based on uh, economics. There's just a variety of things that come to the table. And what we need to do when we talk about this topic is not think of it in terms of trying to make someone feel guilty or someone respond in a way that's going to... Um, be hurtful, but we need to think of it in terms of how can we foster greater understanding of one another and greater dialogue so that where there are issues, like the one this young lady described where she uh, didn't get consideration for employment until she changed her name to something that was more anglicized, for lack of a better term, um, how do we deal with those uh, in a constructive way? Right now, yeah. what we have, as I said before, is it's being weaponized. When somebody says, check your privilege, they're not saying it to help you gain a greater understanding, they're criticizing you. They're yeah. telling you that somehow you're doing something wrong. Well, we, we had a discussion about this uh, some months ago, and I challenged the concept of white privilege, because, particularly because it's been weaponized. And I think that term has to disappear if we're going to have objective conversations with one another, because it's already been used and already been uh, turned into a weapon. And... Uh, I used the, the term earlier, and <clears throat> excuse me, I'm going to have to take a break here in a moment, but uh, I, I, I said earlier what, uh, what happens is that you end up programming loyal foot soldiers to political correctness 
And if that's the objective, and it takes us back to the beginning of our conversation at the top of the hour, Ron, if that's the objective, then everybody loses. And in the case of the kids in the school in Wisconsin, it's, it's the kids who lose. I always enjoy speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Well, thank you for giving me more time. I always enjoy talking to you. I hope you have a wonderful 2018. And you run, and we'll be in touch. We'll hopefully be able to get you on the air quite a few times before the uh, the year runs out. Thank you. You take care, Roy. All the best. Ron Miller, Associate Dean at Liberty University, the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. And going from memory here, his, his Twitter is at Ron's Reflections, I believe. I'm almost sure. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. The stories that have dominated interest, I think public interest, international interest, have come out of Washington. And uh, they've had to do with Mr. Trump. They've had to do with North Korea. They've had to do with, again, uh, Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, the book Fire and Fury inside the Trump White House. Joining me is our good friend Fran Coombs, the managing editor of Rasmussen Reports and the former editor of the Washington Times. Fran, thank you so much for the time. Happy New Year and the situation in Washington. Can we start with uh, President Trump tweeting on uh, on Iran and tweeting at Kim Jong-un about nuclear buttons and then also saying he's willing to meet with the North uh, Korean dictator? Right. Well, I think. I mean, again, I think again, Roy, we're seeing this is this is Trump, right? He's in in people's faces more than the usual diplomatic uh, president, if you will. Uh, but it's all. I mean, he's 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 backing down North Korea. Uh, he's serving notice to to uh, Iran. I mean, he's cut off funding to Pakistan. I mean, he's he's letting all these folks know that business as usual is over. And coming back at him from those who are opposed to everything that he does, is the accusation that he's mentally unfit to be president of the United States, that they want to go to the 25th Amendment. And Fran, my sense is in 2018, that is going to be the main focus of the opposition to Donald Trump. Well, it continues to be. But I'm, I'm reminded of that old story, uh, Roy, about uh, Paul McCartney dying back in, a, in an auto <laughs> accident back in the late 60s. Yes. Uh, and they, they certainly found a remarkably talented doppelganger to take his place. And so if Donald Trump is mentally unfit, somebody in the White House is doing a heck of a good job as far as his voters are concerned. So then talk to us about uh, the book Fire and Fury with the author having said, and I said earlier, as far as I'm concerned, he blew any credibility he had and any legitimacy for his book when he said, well, I can't really vouch for everything that I wrote. Words to that effect. Right. Well, I think that, I mean, the way I look at it is this book is the same thing we've basically been hearing about Donald Trump for the last two years. I mean, this is the liberal democratic fantasy come true. Uh, if, if there was any nuance to this book, if, there was, if it was anything but what we've been hearing from Trump's opponents for, for ages, that you might want to give it some credence, but I think most people, certainly people on the right, uh, are just completely dismissive of this thing. This is just the, the, the what, I don't know, the flash of the week. So, since you're talking about surveying people, and that's what you do at Rasmussen, rasmussenreports.com, uh, what are Americans saying? What's the popularity level of the president? What rough, what is the, what's the assessment 
of Americans of the performance of Donald Trump as 2018 begins? Well, basically, Trump has been in the mid-40s uh, in terms of approval. Like, for example, on Friday, he was 44. He's run as high as 46% over the last two, two and a half weeks. That's exactly where Obama was at this time in his presidency. So this is pretty much business as usual for a president. Except the mainstream media would not have you believe that for a moment, would they? Well, face it, Roy, you know how the media is. It's all about the numbers these days. Uh, certain news organizations, CNN is certainly a good example, have found that being the resistance, if you will, is good for their business. And so they're going to continue to remain in the resistance. Talk to us about Steve Bannon. Where does he now fit into the overall picture? Well, I think I think Bannon is the liberals' favorite right now because he's talking trash about Trump, but he's already backtracking dramatically. And I think, I mean, he's basically finished. Trump... Trump came out, as you know, in the last day or so and said, look, I'm not even supporting insurgents against Republican incumbents anymore. So any idea that Bannon had that he could bring pro-Trump candidates up and Trump would back him, uh, I think that's all over. So and how is Donald Trump going to be able to handle all of the opposition from other governments like state governments that are taking him to court? California has just decided that it's, or just announced that it's a sanctuary state. Is there going to be, and there was a war between the states and the Obama White House. People should remember that. There were dozens and dozens of lawsuits from states against the White House run by, uh, by Barack Obama. What's, what's, it, what's in store as far as the relationship between the states and, and, and Washington and the White House is concerned? Well, I think, as you, as you correctly noted, for example, over half of the state's attorney generals in the country challenged key portions of Obamacare. They stopped Obama's uh, program of uh, immigration programs. Um, so there was a lot of, there's been a lot of opposition. I think this is just the wave of the future in the United States, no matter who's president. You're going to see uh, Democratic states fighting Republican presidents and vice versa. Fran, is there going to be a question or a theme that Rasmussen is going to particularly focus on going forward in the next six months to a year? No, I think I think basically we're you know as you know our slogan is if it's in the news it's in our polls and so pretty much we're going to be there are certain overriding themes that we try to find out about about uh, kind of cut past the headlines uh, but a lot of it's just going to be what does the public really think about Trump's what Trump's doing versus what the media says and the the best story of course of the week was the the supposed guerrilla channel that Donald Trump supposedly was watching, and they, and it was tweeted, the fellow who tweeted it, on the top of the tweet very clearly wrote, this is a hoax, this is a joke, this isn't real, and yet you had an MSNBC uh, voice or personality madly tweeting away that Donald Trump watched the Gorilla Channel for 17 hours a day. So much for media credibility. Yeah, no, that's... I mean, it's, I mean, when the media gets all worked up over whether or not the White House press secretary really made a pecan pie <laughs> for Thanksgiving, you know we're in bad shape. Yeah, what, what disturbs me, and we have 30 seconds left, what disturbs me, though, is the nasty things and the vicious things that are written about Melania Trump. She's a beautiful, elegant, uh, entrepreneurial person who was doing very well for herself before she met the president. She deserves a lot better than she's getting. Oh, definitely. But that's, look, the new social media-driven uh, news business is nothing like anything that you and me grew up in, Roy. It's nasty, nasty, nasty. Fran, always great talking to you. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll be back in touch. Okay, and Happy New Year to you, too. Thank you so much. Fran Coombs from RasmussenReports.com. 
You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So there's a new book on the market. We've been telling you a bit about it and promoting the fact that we're going to have this conversation. And the book is titled Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada with a Warning to America. The author is Thomas Quiggin. He's qualified as a court expert in the reliability of intelligence as evidence and on terrorism, and that's in criminal and federal court. He has experience and has filled intelligence positions with the RCMP, the Canadian Armed Forces, the United Nations Protection Forces in Yugoslavia, the Privy Council Office, the Bank of Canada, and much more. And Mr. Quiggin joins us on The Roy Green Show on Global News Radio. Tom, thank you very much for making the time. Thanks for inviting me, Roy. Let's. Uh, I want to get back and ask you about the the word submission and the the uh, as the title word in the uh, for the book. But you also had uh, some uh, quite some valuable assistance in writing the book. Do you want to give some credit to the people who worked with you? Yeah, it's uh, some of my co-authors are folks like Tahir Gora, uh, who's originally from Pakistan. Uh, a Muslim who's had a lot of exposure to this kind of violence overseas and understands what's happening now that it's come to Canada. Another one of my colleagues, Saeed from Egypt, who has a fatwa against his life for speaking out against the Muslim Brotherhood, which is one of the focal points of this book. Uh, Rick Gill, who's a former military intelligence guy, did a lot of work on showing how well we've done work on source reliability and information credibility. Uh, Jonathan Kotler, a young guy originally from Montreal, uh, did a lot of work for us on the Muslim Student Association, uh, and he was a real help as well. And then Rahil Reza of Toronto wrote the foreword. So, it's yeah, it's a community effort of several people uh, looking at the, the problem of political Islam as it's uh, working its way into the Canadian government. Well, I focused on Chapter 12, and I'm going to read the whole book, but I focused on Chapter 12, The Trudeau Party, Entryism and Extremist Islam. And you have three key points. Number one, the Prime Minister's cooperation with Islamist groups in Canada is an integral part of his globalist belief system. Number two, Prime Minister Trudeau has used the weight of government offices to silence press criticism of his support for Islamist causes. And number three, in both word and deed, Prime Minister Trudeau has gone out of his way to support Islamist groups and their ideology in Canada. Let's get at all of that as we uh, as we move along. But I want to begin with, uh, with, with this question for you. The cause Mr. Trudeau supports on many occasions including, and we've talked about this a great deal on this program, of uh, identifying returning ISIS terrorists who had no connection with this country, even if they had citizenship, because they flew out and joined ISIS and became confirmed oath-taking members of that terror group. Uh, But he, Trudeau, has identified them as uh, an extraordinarily powerful voice within this country and uh, and then there's his support, quite clearly, for the government of Iran. He said nothing during the uprising that is still ongoing in Iran. Uh, does he, Tom, support the Islamist cause, and is it the cause of political Islam? Can you put that together for us? Yeah, first off, very much it's the cause of political Islam. Uh, these are the folks like the Muslim Brotherhood, the Khomeinius government in Iran, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, the Abu Sayyaf group, Boko Haram, those kinds of folks uh, who bring us this form of political Islam that says all other people in the world must submit 
to their understanding of Islam, uh, hence the title of the book, Submission. So what I found fascinating, and I should just say, when I started doing the actual writing of this book uh, almost three years ago, the word Trudeau wasn't in there, and I had no intent of having a chapter on him. But what I discovered was his name kept popping up uh, on many different occasions. So finally I decided, enough, enough, let's go back and look at this. And I went back, everything he's done from when he was elected as an MP in May 2008 uh, up to last fall. And what I discovered was that on every single occasion when he had to make a decision on where he would go, who he would talk to, who he would support, etc., he literally supported the Islamist cause against all others. Now, more interestingly, I started to talk to secular Muslims, reformist Muslims, and say, have you ever met with Trudeau? Have you ever talked to him? Have you ever had a meeting with him? And every one of them told me the same thing. They said, not only have we never met with him, we can't even get a response to our request to meet with him. So one of the things I would say as a court expert on uh, jihadist-based terrorism and someone who's done a lot of work with source reliability and information credibility, I would say that Trudeau has, since 2008, had a constant steady line of supporting the Islamist cause over all others when there have been challenges made to him. So when you look at something like the return of ISIS fighters, um, it's a bit shocking to actually hear him say they're going to bring a powerful voice to, you know, Canadian society. Uh, but I wasn't overly surprised. But what is fascinating and what I, I don't understand why the media is not focusing more on this issue is that we don't actually have um, a de-radicalization or a reintegration or a de-emphasization program here in Canada. Public safety does have this Center for Community Engagement and the Prevention of Violence, uh, but no one's actually in charge of it. They still haven't found anybody to run it, and they don't actually have a bricks, a brick-and-mortar center to do de-radicalization. Um, so his, his point on this is quite stunning, that we're bringing these fighters back, saying we're going to de-radicalize them, but yet there's not a single example of where it's happened. Uh, because the program doesn't exist. Yeah, not only are they supposedly going to be de-radicalized and reintegrated, but they're going to be an extraordinarily valuable voice for Canada. Has anybody asked them? Um, well, um, the only one time where I'm aware that folks sort of worked a bit with someone who was going down the extremist path was Aaron Driver. And through uh, money that was given to them by the Government of Canada, Centre here in Ontario examined Aaron Driver as a threat uh, to Canada as part of his peace bond thing. And they said, oh, no, he's not a threat to Canada. He's fine. He's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. And, of course, young Mr. Driver went on to become a suicide bomber. Um, so, yeah, the confidence in this kind of thing is not great. Okay. Um, it should be noted that Australia has tried for years to have a de-radicalization program. They spent a ton of money, put a lot of work into it, and they have exactly one success case, uh, which they themselves know is pretty disastrous. The Saudi program uh, has produced a number of people who've gone on to be terrorists. The French government spent millions of euros on a program and eventually gave up on it when they realized that, one, it wasn't working for the six or eight people they had, but also, more importantly, they had no way of forcing people to attend it. So this is another question in Canada. If we have these returning ISIS fighters and we're going to de-radicalize them, how do we go about forcing them to attend a de-radicalization center, which we actually haven't built yet? Yeah, and um, how, interested, yeah. how interested is the actual Muslim community in Canada in these individuals coming back? 
and uh, and appearing in their mosques. I mean, this is a this is a much bigger picture or issue that Mr. Trudeau seems to uh, paint for us now. You write about Iran and Iran's influence on, uh, on on Mr. Trudeau. So, can you speak to us about the influence of the government of Iran? Because it's been silent during the uprising that's still ongoing. Can you talk to us about what you see as the influence of the of Iran on his government? Yeah, the government of Iran, uh, when Mr. Harper was still prime minister spent millions of dollars building up infrastructure and support networks here in Canada to gain influence here, but also to gain access to America. Uh, that came to sort of a crashing halt uh, when Prime Minister Harper closed their embassy and kicked out all their diplomatic staff who've been doing this work. Since then, the Iranians have taken a different approach. Uh, they're infiltrating people into Canada. They're giving them lots of money. Uh, they're inter- entering into the political process, etc., uh, etc., et which is not uh, not unusual. I mean, if, if I was the government of Iran, that's exactly what I'd be doing. But what's interesting, and there's maybe two things you might want to focus on today. The first one would be uh, Justin Trudeau's brother, Alexandra, or Sasha, as he's known, uh, has worked for Press TV, which is the Iranian state agency. He did a documentary on the mullahs in Iran, and it was an absolutely fawning documentary about how wonderful they were, about their defensive nuclear program, etc., etc. And uh, Sasha is, uh, as of October 2012, an advisor to his brother, Prime Minister Trudeau. So that's a little unnerving. Another good example would be to look at uh, Majid Jahari, who's the uh, Liberal MP from Richmond uh, in Toronto. Uh, he is an open supporter of the Iranian regime. And more interestingly, he has, in my opinion, he has blatantly lied to the Canadian public, talking about the elected government of Iran, when in fact anybody that can find Iran on a map knows that it's a theocratic dictatorship of the worst order. Um, the country is completely run by the jurist or the supreme leader, who is Ayatollah uh, Khamenei. And... The elections are actually a bit of a, a bit of a joke, really, in the sense that the supreme leader Ayatollah Khomeini chooses who can run, uh, and then they have no actual power to override anything the Ayatollah does. So, you know, here we have uh, you know a close advisor to the prime minister, who's a fawning uh, lover of Iran, his own brother, and an MP who openly speaks out in support of the Khomeiniist regime. So, yeah, it's a little on the disturbing side, Frank. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. How much of what's going on between Mr. Trudeau and Iran is predicated on economic factors, such as, whenever we talk about economics in Canada and international, the next word is Bombardier. Yes, okay, so let me just back up a bit here. There's a couple of different things going on. Um... Prior to his election as prime minister, but when he was still a, a member of parliament, uh, Trudeau gave an interview to uh, Shada al-Mashrek, which is a newspaper in Montreal, which is openly Khomeiniist and openly supports Hezbollah. And he said if he was elected prime minister, he would have a special immigration program for Muslims and Arabs. And so remember, this is a newspaper that openly supports Hezbollah and the Iranian regime. So... In answer, to answer your question directly, how much of this is involved with Bombardier and money? I would say that that's important. It's a part of the problem. But Trudeau's support for Iran, his open support for the Islamist cause, 
far predates the problems with the Bombardier uh, C-Series jet program and far predates uh, this deal, which we only found out about through the Iranian press, by the way, uh, where the Canadian government is going to uh, underline the loan of $100 million and have the Canadian taxpayer put on the hook if something goes wrong. Um, so, yes, Bombardier is important. Yes, it's there. But Trudeau's support for the Islamist cause far predates that. So let's talk about, uh, if you'll let me ask you about the, um, the hearings on M103, Islamophobia. And we, uh, on this program, quite regularly speak with Dr. Zudi Jasser, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy, and uh, with uh, Rahil Raza, who wrote the preface for your book. And Dr. Jasser and Rahil were invited to address the Parliamentary Committee on M103. Dr. Jasser was roundly attacked by Arif Virani. Um, the liberal MP who called him an extremist and said that uh, that uh, Rahil Raza is an extremist as well. Dr. Jasser offered to debate Mr. Varani on this program. I made the offer, never heard a word back. What's going on? What's the, what, what's the core issue as far as your research uh, shows around M103 and these, these hearings? I address the issue of Islamophobia uh, in the book in a couple of different chapters, and then the whole M103 process in a separate chapter looking at Ikra Khalid and her commitment to this. But here's the bottom line. Islamophobia is a fake concept. It's put forward to silence discussion, and the reason that political Islam, the Islamists, want this discussion shut down is because any rational, open, and public debate about the values of political Islam would show it to be totally against the Canadian Constitution, the Canadian Charter of Rights, and the Criminal Code uh, as well, by the way. So everything looking at um, the idea that man-made law is not acceptable and only law made by God can be made acceptable, of course, is a direct constitution, a direct constitutional challenge. Uh, the issue of like wife-beating, for instance, where we see a number of people in Canada arguing that wife-beating is acceptable because it's a form of education, because it reestablishes authority in the family. And by the way, according to you know, the Muslim Student Association at York University, they hand out a book that say women enjoy a good beating now and again because beating a woman shows a sign of, quote, love and concern for her. So the Islamophobia motion is required it, I think, will be sort of translated into some sort of law or process uh, in order to silence criticism of folks like me and Tahir Gora and Rahil Reza, who actually stand out and say, no, this stuff is so abhorrent, we want nothing to do with it in Canada. Uh, only have two minutes here, so let me come to one of the issues that we first started talking about when it came to Mr. Trudeau, and that's when he told the New York Times that Canada has no core identity, there's no mainstream in this country, that we are the first post-national state, and of course he's a great disciple or follower or supporter of George Soros. Where does all that fit in? Um, he addressed, he sent a video to um, Reviving the Islamic Spirit, which is a conference of sort of the worst of the worst of the Islamist groups in Canada, and he literally, in this video, told them that he shared their vision, he shared their beliefs, and he shared their values. So I think it's reasonably fair to say that he actually sees Western values, he sees the values of the Enlightenment, he sees Judeo-Christian values as a historical aberration of the past that need to be destroyed in order to install his sort of globalist view of the world, uh, which he derives from guys like George Soros, but also from Jean-Claude Juncker, the uh, European Union Commission, the Swedish Foreign Minister, Wallström, and uh, a large group of them. This is, uh, this is a real issue. 
And how much uh, do you expect your book to stir things up in the nation's capital? Well, when I was asked why do I wrote, why did I write this book, uh, the purpose of the book, uh, I tell people, is to start a national conversation on where do we want the country to go. Do we want to maintain the Charter of Rights, the Constitution, the Criminal Code, or do we want to ditch all that in favor of some sort of globalist, Islamist, cultural Marxist kind of future? Uh, so that's kind of like the purpose behind the book, is to try and get that discussion going exactly with uh, guys like you and your listeners. And Mr. Trudeau has shown no interest in speaking with uh, moderate Muslim organizations, but he had no trouble meeting with Joshua Boyle in the Prime Minister's office. And we spoke earlier with uh, Gord Bibby, whose cousin was uh, Robert Hall, and uh, Gord spoke about how the uh, Mr. Trudeau and his, his uh, cabinet have been totally uh, disinterested in the agony that family is experiencing. Tom, I thank you so much uh, for the time, and uh, we'll talk again. All right. Thanks very much, Roy. Tom Quiggin on The Roy Green Show on Global News Radio, and the book is Submission, The Danger of Political Islam to Canada, uh, with a warning to to America. You can bet it's going to create a fair bit of discussion from coast to coast. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, you Maybe you've heard or seen the headlines, but it's one of those stories that just breaks your heart. A four-year-old Aubrey and six-year-old Chloe Berry were found murdered in their Vancouver Island apartment on Christmas Day. And their father, Andrew Robert Douglas Berry, now faces two counts of second-degree murder. There has been court activity as well. Um, I understand there was uh, problems within the family, and uh, joining us to really explain to us what's going on is Simon Little, Global News Radio Digital Reporter in Vancouver. Simon, thank you for taking the time. What's the background on this? Yeah, so um, what we understand uh, is that um, the girl's parents, uh, Andrew Berry and uh, Sarah Cotton, uh, had been in uh, a pretty bitter custody uh, dispute since their estrangement in 2013. Um, And we've had a chance to review some of the sort of court documents associated with this. Uh, In one custody judgment, um, it came out that uh, the father had uh, threatened to uh, blow up the house, uh, that's a quote, uh, in an issue over money. Um, there had also been uh, some concerns from uh, BC's Ministry of Children and Family Development uh, that the father had perhaps been touching one of the girls inappropriately, uh, but that was later um, uh, sort of put aside by a judge who uh, ruled that uh, he was a loving father and that it was uh, in the best interest of the girls for him to spend time with them. Um, so that's sort of what we know about uh, what was sort of brewing in the background uh, with all of this. And now uh, our ministry here doesn't comment on specific cases, but our understanding is that uh, it's conducting right now a preliminary review into whether an in-depth review is necessary in this case. Yeah, I think one of the things that people will always ask is were there any red flags to suggest that these children may be in danger if left alone with their father who was in a significant dispute with their mother, but you say that that there was, as we understand it, there wasn't anything that was really clearly obvious. Yeah, I mean, it it does sort of seem like there were maybe some warning signs based on what we've seen there, but, um, you know, through the system that we have in place here, um, nothing was flagged as, uh, you know, imminent danger type situation like that. 
So what's happening with the father now as far as his court appearances and, and uh, the uh, activities as far as uh, criminal charges are concerned? Yeah, so exactly. So uh, last week uh, on Wednesday, he was charged with uh, two counts of second-degree murder. Uh, and now that came quite, uh, you know, almost two weeks after um, this horrible tragedy happened. And the reason for that, uh, as far as we understand it, is he was in hospital uh, since Christmas with what we understand are self-inflicted injuries. Um, so we don't know, uh, you know, how much contact the police had with him while he was in hospital or what his state was. Um, but uh, the charges didn't come until Wednesday. Uh, so now he's being charged with those two counts. He appeared uh, in court uh, on Thursday, um, didn't make uh, any statements, um, and has uh, the case has now been pushed forward to February 1st um, while he is uh, obtaining uh, legal representation. Um, he's also been put under a, a no-contact order with uh, the mother of the girls. Yeah, Simon, it's just uh, horrific. Little kids... Uh, when, they, when they become victims of a crime such as this, it, it's just something that you can't really, you can't, you can't uh, understand it, and it, it just breaks your heart. Just terrible, terrible situation. Yeah, it's almost impossible to wrap your head yeah. around it. Yeah. I mean, this has affected everybody. You know, the obviously the family is devastated. Um, the um, you know the police that uh, had to attend this scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, you know, we don't know the manner in which these girls died, but. It doesn't really matter what it is. Uh, walking onto that scene would be deeply disturbing. And uh, members of the community actually even reached out to the Oak Bay Police Force, uh, writing them a letter saying, you know, we support you. We understand how difficult this must have been. Uh, and please lean on us as you process this, because, you know, that's not something that really anybody should have to see. No, particularly not Christmas Day. Never, but not particularly not Christmas Day. And it's great of the community to do that, to tell, tell the police, lean on us. Great to have that kind of relationship. Simon, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. All the best. Simon Little joining us uh, from Global News Radio Digital in uh, Vancouver. Just a, you know, just a terrible, terrible, terrible situation. And sometimes we don't think about what it is that first responders have to face uh, on a daily basis. They never know from day to day what it is they're going to have to be living with, and that's why PTSD is such a significant problem with people who... Uh, are in the first responders' line of work. Two little kids, four and six years of age. Much more to come on that particular case, I'm sure. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.